Welcome to the RAB Poetry Podcast, where we bring you the stories behind the words, where every poem has a story behind it. Our podcast is a journey through the hearts and minds of poets as we delve into the inspirations, struggles, and triumphs that fuel their work. In each episode, we'll feature a poem, sharing the underlying stories and reciting the most powerful and moving pieces. From various poems on wide variety of topics and rising poets and authors, our podcast is the perfect companion for anyone who loves poetry and the power of words. Whether you're a seasoned poetry enthusiast or just getting started, you'll find something to love on the RAB Poetry Podcast. So tune in and let the stories of our poets take you on a journey of inspiration and emotion. Listen to the REB Poetry Podcast, available on all major platforms now. Hey everyone, it's uh, Wes and Andy back for another episode of uh, Fandom Power. We're running a little bit late this week. I know we're uh, we're a day. What is it? A a, a day late and a dollar short. A day behind. <laughs> uh, Something like that. Um, right on the heels of our last episode, uh, everybody has gotten some form of illness, which has either uh, taken us down a notch or two. Um, I know uh, both you and Hank have been sort of like recovering, sort of at home. Hank's not doing yep. so well. He's not going to be with us tonight. So uh, we wish we wish you well and uh, speedy recovery, sir. Yep. However, we're here. <laughs> we are. Welcome to Fandor, everybody. It's uh, our latest review series where we uh, break down each episode of uh, Star Wars Andor, the latest live action Star Wars show now streaming on Disney Plus. Hey, if this is your first time uh, with us. Thanks for being here. Nice to have you along. You can think of our show as being like an annotated audio book because just like our previous Star Wars review series, the breakdown is beat for beat where we will cover all the plot points, all the Easter eggs and any greater Star Wars lore connections that we might discover throughout the course of the show. Now, there's a few with it being so late in the week, you might be thinking but I've already seen and heard everything there is to see and hear about this episode. Well, listen, stick around because I guarantee that you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you might've missed. Yep. Now with all that out of the way, um, let's get to our first impressions. What do we think about the episode overall, Andy? Uh, it's another one where it felt over too quick for my tastes. Like it was a great episode, good pacing. But I, I'm, I need the next one. I need that next oh, one now. Right. We talked about how much could they do? How much exposition could there be between Cassian and the crew? And uh, wow, <laughs> apparently an awful lot. That being said, the exposition that we do get uh, this week talks a lot about uh, things like motivations and sort of where certain characters are coming from and i think that that we're really getting that first sort of uh taste of what you know white what might draw somebody like cassian and or uh away from being just a, a a guy who's in it for the money uh to become that person who's willing to risk it all yeah i want to talk a bit about the title did you catch this week's title it's the called axe. the axe uh oh my lord what is it here forgets. it is sorry the axe forgets uh 
It's an African proverb. A Zimbabwean uh, uh, proverb. The axe forgets, but the tree remembers. And uh, we actually get that line delivered later on in the episode. Um, the proverb uh, translates to, roughly to uh, the person who is hurt or uh, or who hurts or who borrows from someone will often forget while the person who gets hurt or is borrowed from will always remember. It's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting title. And when you kind of put that lens, you know, over top of the interactions that we see with certain characters, I mean, it's really obvious when you look at the, the relationship that uh, Skeen and Cassian have in this episode, how that proverb relates to him. Yep. But again, I, you know, if you put that lens over top of Cyril Karn, is there, is there a deeper context there where that character is concerned as well? Because I mean, uh, here's I think... a guy who's, who's just been hurt. He's been fired. I Based think on where we like... find him at the end, he's yeah. definitely in the, he remembers camp. <laughs> I agree with you on that one. All right, man, you ready to get down and do this? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. It is Andor episode five. It is called the axe forgets. This one debuted on, uh, oh my gosh, I think I got the dates wrong. What was the date on uh, uh, this past Wednesday? Um, it was I, October I, something. Yeah, it was October. Oh my Lord. Did I get it right? Yeah, I got it right. It was uh, Wednesday, October 5th. This one is written by uh, Dan Gilroy again and is also directed by Susanna White. A runtime is a 46 minutes. That includes your titles and credits. Or it is a leaner 36 minutes and 48 seconds without. Let's get our uh, let's get our slides going here. As the episode opens, uh, Cyril Karn sits on the edge of a bed in front of a large window at his uh, mother's apartment, and he's uh, staring down at the floor. Then the morning sun pierces the space between two high-rise buildings, and for a few seconds, Cyril's face is bathed in natural light before it fades away again behind the sprawl of the Coruscant cityscape. And uh, as the light fades, both uh, literally and metaphorically, Cyril's lower lip begins to tremble and tears well up in his eyes. I literally paused the episode at this moment because up until now, I didn't really care for this guy's character, for his character. And I don't really know how I feel about him going forward. But let me tell you, as an actor... Kyle Soler completely sold this moment for me in uh, in the few seconds that we actually got to see his face in this. How powerful that that was! That you know the sun setting on him literally in the less and I counted less than five seconds of natural daylight that he got. Yeah. Um, I kind of imagine him sitting there feeling maybe a little bit sorry for himself, like he's some kind of failure. Maybe a little bit. The way his mom treats him certainly lends to that. Well, there and there's a lot going on there as well. Cut to a wider shot of the apartment where Cyril is now sitting at a dining room table. It's housed in a restaurant-style uh, booth that uh, separates the galley-style kitchen from the living room. Off in the corner, we can see a new style of droid. Uh, it bears a similar uh, basic stylings as an astromech, although this one has uh, four squat limbs for propulsion instead of the uh, usual two legs and the uh, uh, concealed third wheel of a regular astromech. Uh, 
Cyril sits there in silence while his arms are folded and resting on the table, staring down at an empty bowl, while his mother, Edie, chastises him for slouching as uh, she pours him some breakfast cereal, which, by the way, the descriptive audio calls these crunchies. Hmm. Topping off the crunchies with blue milk, Edie asks her son if that's how he's been presenting himself, saying uh, that would explain a lot about him. Edie nods to herself rather matter-of-factly as she tells him uh, that being a leader isn't something that you turn on and off. And by the time you remember to sit up straight, it's already too late. Pouring herself uh, herself a cup of calf, uh, she sits across the table from him, and the two begin to have this weird exchange of like passive-aggressive uh, quips and thinly-veiled insults. Edie centers on her disappointment that Cyril never visited her while uh, while he was gone with the Primor security. But Cyril counters that he had an extra room and she could have visited whenever she wanted. Um, and then she makes some remark about how an open invitation is no real invitation at all. But then calling through the cutting through sort of the, the BS, she calls him out and uh, basically says that uh, she suspects that he has no future prospects. Cyril then retorts, I had forgotten the precision of your predictive powers. But uh, pressing her son, Edie turns it back on him and uh, saying that he forgot her question. And pointedly, she asks him, do you have even a single prospect before you? With a blank stare, Cyril nods his head slightly as he uh, absently answers, I'll find a way. Edie is clearly not satisfied with the answer, and she says that she's calling Uncle Harlow, uh, and she's going to call in the family favor. Then mother and son banter back and forth about the efficacy of this gesture, with Cyril questioning whether or not the favor will even be received if Uncle Harlow even remembers who she is. And uh, Edie is convinced that uh, Uncle Harlow is the right thing to do, uh, and says that he'll appreciate that she's waited so long to even call him. Um, and she insinuates um, that Uncle Harlow will be will know what to do and be able to take Cyril on in whatever kind of business that he's involved with. Well, considering uh, Cyril's snippy retort of setting the bar high, are we? We might assume that whatever it is that Uncle Harlow does, it's not very appealing to him. And staring at her son, Edie says, Uncle Harlow will know what's best as she shoves a uh, tray of fruit uh, towards him. I want to talk about Uncle Harlow for a minute here. There, uh, there's an ambiguity in this conversation where it's almost, it's almost godfather-like the way that they talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Like there's, some, there's some heavy-duty mental math going on between these two people. Um, and a big family favor that's due... Well, this is it. And that, so that kind of begs the question, um, who is uncle Harlow and what exactly does he do? We have a couple of, we have a couple of uh, star Wars references to the name Harlow, but they are spelt differently. So in the episode Harlow, it's uh, H A R L O. And the existing references we have are with a W. So Harlow, the first one that I want to talk about, this one is, uh, um, Harlow Ricks. Harlow Ricks was an intermediary for a pirate gang boss uh, in the video game uh, The Old Republic, specifically the uh, the expansion pack The Shadow of Revan. That's an interesting thought that Uncle Harlow could be connected to crime some way. I mean, that kind of completes that sort of godfather mm-hmm. quality of this conversation. 
Well, the other one um, is a reference to a moth, Moth Harlow, who acted as the moth of the uh, Katerio sector uh, during the reign of the Empire. Now, this one comes from uh, the 1996 uh, RPG supplement Star Wars Adventure Journal, uh, Volume 1, Number 11. What makes this one a little bit more interesting and maybe a little bit more compelling is when you look at the Katario sector and you find out that it's actually very close to the corporate sector. And hmm. given, given how much that the show has already leaned into the corporate sector thing, um, Uncle Harlow might be an Imperial moth. Who knows? It's a good foot to have in the door. I would say so. And a very easy way to get Cyril Karn back in the saddle, you know, in some capacity. Yeah. Edie Karn is played by uh, actress Catherine Hunter. Now, you might remember her from uh, the miniseries Rome, where she played Charmian, which was uh, one of Cleopatra's slaves. Or you might remember her as uh, Mrs. Arabella Fig from uh, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Hmm. On Aldani, Vel's crew sleeps soundly in hammocks suspended inside the uh, the low stone shelters. Cassian wakes in a fog, but is suddenly jarred clear when he noticed that his satchel bag is missing. Quickly fumbling through his pocket, he finds the blue kyber that Luthen gave him. It's still there, and it's untouched. Spotting an empty hammock, Cassian rushes outside to find Skeen, taking a birdbath from a pot that's resting on top of a makeshift table. Now spread out on the table... Uh, beside the pot lay the contents of Cassian's bag and everything is laid out kind of methodically like it's being inspected I think I just double skipped I did sorry skipped ahead there too far aware that Cassian no is uh, uh, aware that Cassian is behind him Skeen says it's all there he tells Cassian that uh, Vel told him to look through it he adds that uh, he thinks Vel may be having second thoughts about him and says you can go talk to her if you want She'll be up soon. Cassian clenches his jaw while Skeen looks down at the gear strewn across the table. Skeen finds it interesting that Cassian didn't come with very much, and uh, when it's added to his injured arm, it's clear to him that wherever Cassian came from, he left in a hurry. Skeen picks up Cyril's blaster, recognizing it, uh, recognizing the logo on the embossed grip. He calls that interesting. Looking at Cassian, he says, uh, there's no use in being upset. You're lucky to be alive right now, adding that he and the others have been down here for months and the stakes are very high. Skeen then asks Cassian how his arm is, and dismissively, Cassian says, I'll be fine. Gesturing at Cyril's uh, blaster, Skeen questions uh, who it belonged to, and quite truthfully, Cassian says, I didn't get a name. Cassian moves to collect his belongings, and Skeen squares off with him as he points to a very large barcode tattoo on his chest. He says, you know what this means, don't you? The tattoo reads KH-727-42647. Nodding, Cassian says, Greathead. Uh, stealing a quick glance at the shelters, Skeen tells Cassians, Cassian, uh, see, they don't know. They got no idea. He then points to a second tattoo. This one is on the inside of his left forearm, and he says, what about this one? Again, Cassian nods as he says, by the hand. With a quiet understanding between the two men, Skeen asks him, so, where were you? And Cass uh, Cassian answers, Sippo, adding that it was a youth center, and that by age 13, he had gone in there for three years. Skeen says, never heard of it. 
Cassian says, well, you didn't miss anything. Looking at Cassian, uh, Skeen says, they built a lot of, they've built a lot of cages, huh? And then follows it up with, a, with the proverb, the axe forgets, but the tree remembers. Then his eyes grow wide as he tells Cassian, now it's our turn to do the chopping. All right, I'm going to stick with this for a second here. I want to talk about these tattoos because uh, as the uh, subtitles tell us, uh, it's crate as in the same spelling as the crate dragon as opposed to uh, Crate, uh, the planet, the salt planet that we visited in, yeah. uh, in what? The last, last Jedi, year, I think it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, my first impression was, like, right off the top, like, this is it's a prison tattoo. It's a barcode with a number on it. I mean, it's kind of, yeah. you know, Nazi Germany-esque, if you ask Internment me. camp. And... But then the Crate head thing threw me off, and I'm thinking, well, we've already had one Star Wars beast perverted into a gang symbol. Uh, with the Kinten Striders. Mm. And so I'm wondering, you know, are the crate heads maybe another, are they a gang? Is it a, pri- is it a prison thing or is it a gang? And I mean, is it a gang within a prison system? Like who knows? Or is uh, it an Imperial, like a division of the Imperial army? Well, there you go. Like, like Cassian says, you know, he was at a youth camp, it, you know, Sippo, was that like the Hitler youth or something? Like maybe who knows? Um, as for the by the hand uh, tattoo, there are a couple of references in Star Wars uh, to uh, hands. Uh, the first one is a uh, hand, like as in Hand of the Emperor. Um, yeah. If you're a Game, a Game of Thrones fan, uh, Hand of the King, it's the same idea. Only in Star Wars, the hands were these secret agents uh, of the Emperor who basically were, in a lot of ways, they were like private assassins for him. Uh, we have Mara Jade in Star Wars Legends and Gar Saxon in canon, who were both uh, hands of the Emperor. Uh, pretty safe to say that Skeen is probably not a hand of the Emperor, though. <laughs> no. I mean, I I could could be wrong, I guess. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't think, given what we know about him overall, I don't think he is. Well, there's also another interesting uh, reference here to hands, and it's a little thing called the hand of, or the empire of the hand. Well, the empire of the hand comes from uh, Timothy Zahn's book, um, Spectre of the Past, which is part of the second series of books that he wrote about Grand Admiral Thrawn called uh, the Hand of Thrawn Duology. The Mm. empire of the hand uh, specifically was a organization, was a martial confederacy in the unknown regions of space brought together by Grand Admiral Thrawn in an alliance to fend off threats to the Galactic Empire from uh, threats that originated in the Unknown Regions. More specifically, the Hand of Thrawn specifically refers to a city-like fortress that served as the main base for the Empire of the Hand, and the building was comprised of five towers that vaguely resemble an outstretched hand. Well, I mean, that tattoo could Mm-hmm. maybe totally so, i mean what's the joke we've been making all roads lead to thrawn <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing hard by really... accident right and i don't want to dismiss either of these but given where star wars is kind of going with their live action tv properties i do think there might be something to the the hand of thrawn thing mm-hmm all right if, anyway. if anything just laying in more easter eggs that'll like you know, or seeds for future stories. That may, it could pay off later on down the road. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, Cassian concludes that uh, Skeen is in this for revenge. And uh, in return, Skeen asks, and you? Well, sticking to his cover, Cassian says he was told he could help. But Skeen, who isn't even remotely trying to hide his suspicions at this point, retorts, yeah, but you won't say by who. Cassian tells him uh, that working with other people is never easy. And Skeen agrees with him, adding that he never took Cassian to be a team player. Cassian looks back at the uh, shelters and uh, speaking matter of factly, he says, because it always breaks at the weakest point. Catching uh, Cassian's meaning, Skeen remarks that if he's worried about the kids, he shouldn't be. He calls Nemec green, but notes that he's all in and a true believer in the cause. At that point, uh, Vel and Sinta both exit from their hut, and Skeen calls Sinta cold-blooded and fearless, adding that she might just be the toughest one there. And he says, oh, and she's already sharing a blanket, if that's what you're wondering. Cassian scoffs as he asks, what about Lieutenant Gorn? And Skeen answers that without him, there's no plan. But Cassian counters with, he could be walking us right into a trap. While pulling his shirt over his head, Skeen retorts, yeah, they would have taken us down by now. While then smiling at Cassian, he says, maybe that's what you're here for. And he walks away. Calling after him, Cassian says, I'm here to win and walk away. And Skeen looks back over his shoulder with a smile and says, wouldn't that be lovely? On Coruscant, Mon Mothma sits alone at the dining room table. And uh, I'm just going to pause here for a second because, dang it, I wanted that dinner party and we didn't get it. No, Ugh, I'm denied. so if there was one thing that disappointed me, I'm like, oh, we're going to dinner because they they like, oh, OK, the, is the dinner over? Are they waiting for everybody to show up? Oh, no, it's like at least the next day, maybe longer. And, yeah, been uh, and gone. Yeah. So I disappointed that we didn't get the dinner. <clears throat> but we do get to learn a little bit more about uh, Mon Mothma's family dynamic from this sequence. That's for sure. And we get a bit more well, of the uh, depth of the sacrifice she's putting in, too. Yeah, I mean, there is, yeah, I mean, I've I've met people who are so career-minded, so focused, that other things like family suffered. And I, and I truly think, I had suggested last week that maybe she was sort of the reason for the dysfunction in the family. And I would say by... With this episode, I am 99% convinced that she's the problem, not yep. Perrin. She is. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Perrin's, a, Perrin's so full of himself. He's a jerk too. But, I mean, he's not the one that broke the marriage. I think she is. No. Well, Perrin enters the room and uh, with total apathy remarks that uh, the driver is here. Looking up from her pad, Mon Mothma reminds him that his name is Chloris. Uh, before she says, is Lita ready? He says he's not sure, so Mon Mothma calls out. A moment later, a teenage girl dressed in a blue kimono-style robe enters the dining room and sits down across from Perrin. Uh, totally was not expecting them to have children, by the way. No. Well, the following exchange between the girl and her mother is barely civil. The two of them argue about having planned to go somewhere. Presumably, I think this is over Mon Mothma taking her to school. Something um, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, Mon Mothma asserts that she's going to be the one to take her. But Lita has decided that, no, it's her father that's going to take her um, because she doesn't have any early classes that day. But neither Lita nor Perrin 
who both appear to have made this arrangement off camera sometime before now, neither one of them have made any mention of that uh, before this exact moment. Well, Mon Mothma, she flips it into mom mode and tells her daughter, get your coat. But Lita balks at her with this this incredulity that suggests just like her mother and father, she and her mother are also very far apart. It's reminiscent of the exchange that Mon Mothma and Perrin had had the night before at the di- before the dinner party, and it does kind of reinforce what I said last episode that maybe Mon Mothma's dedication to her job is the wedge in her home life as both an absentee spouse and now parent as well. Well, Lita simply isn't impressed with her mother's sudden interest in spending time with her and says that she's doing it to show off. And when her mother asks, showing what off? The answer is nothing short of a sting, because Lita spits out that you're interested. Now, it's not anything that any, you know, like countless uh, numbers of teenagers have probably said to their parents before, but it does come across like this is the first time that Mon Mothma has ever heard it. She calls Lita's words hurtful, which does nothing but reinforce Lita's position, and it makes her more angry because in her mother's eyes, or sorry, in Lita's eyes, um, her mom makes everything about herself. Well, defeated, Mon Mothma picks up her pad. She looks down at Perrin, sarcastically retorting, thanks for the support, and leaves the room. Nothing like doing that in front of your kid, by the way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's not helping herself, I'll tell you that much. Nope. Lita is played by uh, actress Bronte Carmichael. Uh, she played Madeline Robin in the uh, live-action Christopher Robin movie. Nice. And, uh, you may have also seen her as uh, Sky DeBrannon in uh, Night Flyers over on Sci-Fi. Back on Aldani, everyone seems to be carrying out their tasks of uh, camp routine. As Cinta um, hangs out Imperial uniforms to dry, Nemec arrives bearing a stainless jug of what he calls Dre milk. Yeah, sorry, folks. I mis, uh, mislabeled them last week. I said they were sheep. They are not. In fact, they are no. uh, Drey. I guess that is a new a new creature. So four, uh, four-horned, long-haired black sheep are Drey in the Star Wars universe. I actually saw one with six horns. Oh, okay. I yeah, there is one in the episode. Attention. Yeah, it's got the two set up, the two set forward, and a smaller set facing down. Now... I don't know if it's just the way that it comes across on the screen, but like the, the milk isn't exactly white either. It's kind of off white, almost almondy, like light, light Brown. So now we've got what uh, blue milk, green milk, Brown milk. (laughs) Yep. We get all the milks. (laughs) Well, pouring Cassie in a mug full, he says, you can live on it, but you might question your existence after a few days. (laughs) Um, Cassian takes a very small sip and nearly gags on it while Nemec remarks, memorable, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) While shifting his attention, Nemec pulls out an electronic device and he begins to unfold it. The device is essentially a compass of sorts, and seeing it, Cassian remarks, that's an old one. Optimistically, Nemec counters old and true and sturdy, calling it one of the best pieces of navigation equipment ever created and says that it can't be jammed or intercepted, and if something breaks, you can fix it yourself. Cassian says, well, it's hard to learn. With a very serious look, Nemec looks at him, yes, but once you've mastered it, you're free. 
He then continues saying that society has grown increasingly dependent on imperial technology, and that has made them vulnerable. He talks about a growing list of things that they once knew, but have since forgotten or have been pushed to forget by the Empire, punctuating it with things like freedom. Um, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on the whole conspiracy theory thing, but does this not sound like uh, any day Very. right now, like reliance uh-huh. on technology? Yeah. Yep. Ski Social commentary. Well, there, there is that. Skeen, who has come over to pour some of the Dray milk, crouches down and remarks that uh, Nemec sees oppression everywhere. And without turning his head, Nemec retorts, Skeen pretends not to listen, but I know the message is sinking in. Skeen takes a seat against a nearby tree and tells Cassian that Nemec is writing a manifesto, adding, did he tell you? Um, so the compass... <laughs> I'm not a camera expert, but uh, I do believe that we are looking at a uh, 1978 year Polaroid SX70 land camera model number two Um, is definitely a Polaroid camera. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I love the fact that it is um, the the fact that it's it's a 70s model. It just it's so Star Wars. Yeah, Um, I probably shouldn't make a big deal about this. Because we're talking about a, a universe with space wizards and laser swords, but I just want to talk about how cool I think this piece of gear is, and uh, because we're we're literally this thing ranks up there with lightsabers in terms of things that just should not work. Because if you understand how a compass, a modern compass, works, that it works on magnetic fields, we're talking about a compass that functions on any planet in any system, regardless of the planet's gravity, regardless of its day-night cycle, that just shouldn't work. <laughs> but it, but that that's so cool. All right, I'm yeah. done. Star Wars Space Compass. I love it. All right, getting back to the manifesto, Skeen begins to recite it, leading with, the only thing that is keeping us from liberty is a few more ideas. With enthusiasm, Nemec nods his head rapidly as he pulls out what appears to be a small journal from his pocket, and he jumps in with, yes, a few more ideas. Thumbing over the little book, he outlines how much is going wrong in the galaxy and how fast it's all transpiring. He says that uh, the pace of oppression outstrips our ability to understand it. And that is the real trick of the Imperial Thought Machine, noting that it's easier to hide behind 40 atrocities than it is to hide behind a single incident. Nemec steals his jaw as he adds, but they have a real fight on their hands now, don't they? Remarking that the Empire would have to shake the whole galaxy in order to strip them of what he calls their elemental rights. Interrupting the moment, Skeen says that uh, he'd like to hear what Clem believes. Narrowing his gaze for a moment, Nemec nods in agreement, and Cassian answers with, I know what I'm against. He then passes the compass back to Nemec and adds, everything else will have to wait. While taking the compass, Nemec calls Cassian the ideal reader for his manifesto. He says he hasn't given it a title yet, and he calls it a work in progress and admits that uh, he still has a lot to say. Then, inspired, Nemec holds up both the compass uh, in one hand and his manifesto in the other. Staring at the two objects, he contrasts them, saying that one charts an astral path, while the other maps the trail of political consciousness. 
both systems based on truth and both navigating towards clear, achievable outcomes based on fact. But before he can continue, Terramin steps out from the nearby hut and he summons Cassian to join them. Nemec concedes that his manifesto will have to wait while Skeen chuckles as he remarks to Cassian that it's been a busy day and uh, finish your milk, Clem. Getting up, Cassian smiles down at Nemec and tosses the rest of the milk into the fire and walks away. Then with Cassian gone, Nemec looks at Skeen and rhetorically asks, you don't trust him. Skeen smiles as he answers, I barely trust you. Um, I've talked about Nemec uh, in our last episode and how, how much they've gone out to, to paint him as this with the boyish qualities. Yep. And uh, I don't think he's going to make it. <laughs> uh, I want to put, I'm going to put a theory out there. I'm, I'm putting this there and I'm swinging big with this one. Um, I'm going to propose that Nemec is about to become one of the single most important characters in Star Wars history. And the reason I'm saying that is because of his, his book, his manifesto, because I believe that when he falls, because it's not a, it's not a case of if it's when, when he falls, somebody, whether it's Skeen or Cassian himself or somebody else, ultimately that book will fall into Cassian's hands who will then either through Luthen or somebody else, it'll make its way into Mon Mothma's hands and uh, would basically have the fundamental building blocks of the formalized rebel alliance, or, or we might be looking at a rough draft of the new Republic constitution. Mm -hmm. uh, this document is a, a, an abridged version. It's a, it's a neat little thing that was published in the uh, air to the empire. Another Thrawn reference, by the way, the air to the empire source book for the star Wars role-playing game by uh, West end games. This one come uh, published in 1992. But uh, in that publication, it was actually signed. Mon Mothma actually signed it. So uh, I don't know. That's what I kind of think that's where they're going. I mean, they made a point. They make such a point to to paint him as this like innocent kid, and now he's a he's a political I idealist. To mm -hmm. quote uh, Kiari Mundi talking about Kiari Mundi talking about um, about Count Dooku uh, being a political idealist. Uh, Nemec really is as well. But I do think that that book, that book that he's written, is Will the foundation play. of something bigger. I can see it. Inside the hut, Velen uh, and uh, Terraman go over some of the details pertaining to the uh, launch of the Rono Box Freighter. Vel points out that the ship is on an overhead rail and that there is an adjusted thrust ratio in order to make it up the ramp. Cassian follows along like, yeah, that's obvious. And when Terraman asks about calibrating the weight of the ship to account for the payroll credits, Cassian confusedly says, what about it? Well, Vel asks him seriously, how would you do it? Now, thinking that this is like some kind of joke, um, Cassian asks, is this a test? Like, only Vel isn't joking. Um, it really is a test. But the test is actually on her, not on him, because they legitimately don't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah so um cassian realizes they have no idea how to get the ship out of the hangar and he questions if they even know if it's actually sitting on the rail or not well vel assures him that it is because lieutenant gorn who is apparently in the hangar every day says it is 
wide-eyed and dismayed cassie and exposits that there's a gauge on the control panel and it displays the ship's laden weight then terraman asks well why isn't that in the manual and cassian who is absolutely flabbergasted by this point says because it's a custom add-on he then laughs at how ridiculous the whole thing and uh, um, asks vel what were you going to do if i wasn't here vel just says oh, we would have figured it out cassian having had enough of the ineptitude about the the ship says i'll fly it and vel is like you'll do as you're told but Cassian barks right back at her, insisting that if he's putting his ass on the line for them, he will be the one to fly it. And he tells her that uh, she can say it's her idea, but uh, this is the way it has to be, a point that uh, she humbly concedes. A short while later, as uh, Vel and Cinta go about feeding the Drays, uh, Terraman calls Cassian to join him in an open space near the paddock. And in the background, we can see Skeen sighting in what looks to be Imperial blaster rifles. Um, we knew that they had those, uh, the space AKs, but this is the first time I think we've seen Imperial hardware. Uh, specifically, the, the rifle that he's uh, handling there looks like an E-10 rifle. And uh, the E-10 was introduced uh, back in Solo, a Star Wars story. And it's the rifle that bridges the gap uh, between the Republic era DC 15 and then the modern uh, E 11 stormtrooper blaster. Except the one that we see skiing handling, it looks like it's a modified version of the E 10 R. So it's got that, uh, that Sherman tank scope on it that the E 11 has, but uh, unlike the E 10 R where it's at the end of the barrel, that uh, scope is over the uh, upper receiver kind of where it would normally be. Mm. So yeah, E 10. Pointing up the valley, Terraman calls out where a dam might occupy the space between the valley walls. He indicates positions for the tower yard, the barracks, the garrison headquarters, and the runway launch tunnel. Well, then the camera begins to pan around them while Terraman points out the flight control tower. And finally, the camera comes to rest on the opening of the Dray paddock, which Terraman calls objective number one, the doorway at the base of the dam which will be their entry point into the garrison. Turning behind him, he gestures that the uh, temple path has a downward pitch, but this mocked-up rehearsal space has all the correct distances, including the distance from the temple to the door, which is matched by the distance from their shelter hut to the dray paddock. That's cool that they built a one-to-one -one rehearsal mm -hmm. space. Yeah, so not only and do then, they have the little model yeah, to just yeah. plan, now they have the practice space. And totally concealed with the with the sheep thing, which I thought yeah. that's pretty cool. At the Aldani garrison, Lieutenant Gorn conducts an inspection of the nearby temple and its surrounding grounds. The site is in shambles with debris littered about, littered about and a makeshift metal target fixed uh, to one of the spires. Looks like a garbage can lid. <laughs> mm -hmm. The lieutenant tears the unauthorized target down in disgust and demands to know where are they? The two enlisted soldiers, both armed with the same E-10s that we saw before, uh, stand there staring in awkward silence. The lieutenant barks at them how this area was supposed to be cleaned up the day before, and he demands again, where are they? One of the men sheepishly answers that uh, he thinks they should be back soon, whoever they are. And uh, when Lieutenant Gorn shouts, back from where? The other soldier says, I believe they're in the tower, sir. 
adding that the commandant's wife needed help moving furniture for the upcoming dinner. Presumably that's with the uh, engineer that's showing up the same day. Yeah. Well, Gorn pauses for a moment before he lowers his voice and tells the two soldiers that uh, he'll be back in an hour and uh, the cleaning had better be well underway or he'll be revisiting the winter leave schedule. And as uh, Gorn walks away and the two, the two soldiers begin the unwanted task of picking up someone else's garbage. (laughs) As somebody who's been in the military, I cannot tell you the number of times that I've had to pick up somebody else's garbage. (laughs) This is so real in this case. And, and the commandant's wife borrowing the men to do something at home that totally that happens. It totally happens. (laughs) all right um oh yeah i was guys i actually made a a reference about that uh we're talking when uh we're talking about how real it became when uh, when hank realized that uh, stormtroopers get paid Mm -hmm. and i'm like nobody think nobody talks about leave schedules and then like here we are talking about the leave schedule nobody thinks of rotations and and who's going where and for how long yeah now they've they've actually addressed it so yeah very very well done Oh, back at the camp, Cassian is now uh, oriented to the lay of the land as it pertains to the garrison. Terraman begins to drill and coach him on acting like a soldier. Um, He says to Cassian that his alibi is Private Clem from the airbase, and he's been transferred to the garrison for a special duty. Circling around Cassian to size him up, Terraman grasps Cassian's shoulder, telling him, shoulders back. So Cassian stands a little taller. But it's not good enough, and Terraman tells him more, trying to correct Cassian with yet another physical adjustment. Cassian this time recoils under the unwanted touch, hissing at Terraman, don't touch me. You want something? You tell me. It's a tense moment, and even Skeen, who was busy servicing those weapons, has like stopped to notice, like, oh, something's going on. Terraman backs off, and he asks uh, if Cassian can walk like a soldier. And Cassian says, I've seen it done before. Terraman nods as uh, he alludes to uh, finding out how much he paid attention as he orders the other men to uh, form up. Cut now to the streets of Ferrix, where we hear the uh, rhythmic sound of marching jackbooted feet as a contingent of Imperial troops moves down a covered sidewalk and marches into a hotel. Just beyond the end of the sidewalk, uh, Blevin stands in the intersection and watches as local workers clean the blaster scoring off of the building next door. From off camera, we can hear a man inside the hotel shout, I don't care where it goes, get it out of here. Blevin, recognizing the voice, calls out for uh, Captain Tigo to join him. An Imperial Army captain dressed in a black uniform exits the hotel and tells Blevin that uh, they're still clearing out some guests. I'm just going to talk about this just for a quick second because I know how frustrating it was the last time we talked about this, but like Lucasfilm, if you are listening and or watching, please, 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 can you give us a proper canon Imperial rank chart, please? <laughs> um, because I can't find anything uh, that says that three blue pips Uh, is an army captain however i will say this there is some consistency here because 
both um you don't see it in this sequence but uh, both blevin who is uh, said to be a navy uh, lieutenant and uh, tigo who are an army captain they are both wearing three blue pips which is pretty consistent uh, because in westernized militaries like here in canada uh, a navy lieutenant and an army captain would be wearing the same uh, rank bars well, okay. sorry, that's not true anymore because we just went back to the old British pip style. But in, like, say, in the U.S. Navy, it's still the same, like the two thick bars. They would wear the same rank. So there is a consistency there anyway. Hmm. With, Blevin, um, with Blevin leading, the two men step out into the street and uh, Blevin asks Tigo, what do you think? Tigo, looking back at the building, says, there's a hotel? And Blevin impatiently asks, do you want it or not? And Tigo, who apparently is a, a little bit dense, says, the assignment? Of course, Blevin tells him he doesn't have a choice. The assignment is already his, before he gestures back at the hotel, saying that uh, he wondered if the hotel would do as Tigo's headquarters. And then without even answering the question, Tigo actually makes this like really interesting move where he goes right to, could I be named prefect? Like... We talked about ambition as a theme uh, in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's not wearing ambition on your sleeve, yeah, um, basically becoming the 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 legal magistrate for the planet. Mm-hmm. Well, Blevin tells him that uh, you can wear a ball gown if you like. Just get this up and running before my next uh, staff meeting. As Blevin leaves, uh, Tigo standing alone, staring at his newly minted headquarters. The camera pulls back as another formation of troops marches past. And we then cut to, uh, sorry, hang on a second. We're going to go with Tigo first. Uh, Captain Vanis Tigo. That's uh, played. He's played by actor Wilf Scolding, uh, where he played recently uh, Frank Doyle in Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of uh, Dumbledore. He also played Rhaegar Targaryen in a uh, flashback scene in uh, Game of Thrones. Nice. We cut back to uh, Aldani, where Terramin is now leading the men in a formation march. The steps are crisp, maybe even a little too crisp, as the movement is kind of exaggerated, but for the most part, it looks very convincing. As they march, Terramin coaches them on the psychology of the drill and says that it's about confidence and acting like they're supposed to be there. As they get closer to the paddock, Terramin calls out how the door at the base of the dam will be open as they approach, and Lieutenant Gorn will be out front. Vel and Sinta watch the men as they lean against the dray paddock. And getting closer now, Terramin calls out to keep their eyes on Lieutenant Gorn at all times and listen. Be prepared to adapt, and the last man through bolts the door behind them. Terramin then calls the halt, and they execute the movement with extreme precision. As they begin to break off, Terramin opens the floor to questions, and Cassian takes the opportunity as he nods toward uh, Vel and Sinta and asks, what are they doing? Terramin says, "Uh, never mind, adding that he already has enough to worry about, and he then orders the men to form up again so they can repeat the drill, only this time they'll do it at the proper speed. Staring at the ground, Cassian casually says, "Uh, you should switch. And Terramin looks blankly at him and says, what? Cassian nods at Skeen as he says, he's left-handed, so you should switch sides. Terramin, now having his authority challenged in front of the group, suggests that Cassian gets a grip on whatever it is that they're already doing before he starts making suggestions. 
Well, Cassian takes the suggestion and he actually goes to get in line to do the drill again. But as he goes to walk away, Vel steps forward and says, why should they switch sides? Stopping, Cassian turns around and he says, well, you want your weapon on the outside of the formation. And uh, this is where uh, they were doing so good in this episode. And uh, this is great. The The whole sequence of dialogue is great, but they bomb it right here. And uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you why, if you didn't pick up on it already, because any of the astute viewers, anybody who's been in the military, you probably already picked this up. There's a small problem with the sequence because telling uh, Cassian telling them, yes, you want your weapons on the outside is absolutely right. It is so right. But you want the business end of your weapon on the outside, the barrels. So if you're looking at the, the image that we have on screen and you see that Terraman and Skeen are already in the proper position. They are already barrels out. It's Cassian and Nemec who need to switch. Oh, so close, guys. So close. Um, by the way, the fact that they've even addressed that, that's a detail that's like largely like not talked about or largely un like unaddressed. Yeah. Like look at the look at the Mandalorian. You know, the episode where he uh where Mando and um um Bill Burr are going to the the base yeah and they get at the end of it the stormtroopers come out in formation and they are like weapons all over the place like there is no there's no rhyme or reason (laughs) all right well at least they tried i mean if you can overlook the fact that they are already in the right position to begin with it's fine surprised at the detail uh, vel asks cassian to identify the dominant hand of everyone else in the group which he does without hesitation to the point that even though Nemec is right-handed, Cassian knows that he shoots left and the image on screen supports that, that Nemec is holding his weapon left-handed like a left-handed shooter would. And that is the confirmation that no, no, it's Nemec and Cassian that need to switch. Otherwise you get everybody with the barrels in and something happens and they shoot each other in the head. Yeah. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say about that. Well, it's an awkward moment for sure, uh, but as the group moves to reset for the next uh, drill, Cinta hears a sound off in the distance, and she calls, wait! Far off, a TIE fighter rounds one of the mountains and is headed on a course that will bring it very near their practice area. Uh, Close enough that Vel shouts, cover the guns! And uh, everyone scrambles. The Imperial blasters are quickly tossed in a hole and covered with some mesh netting, while the space AKs, which are now laying on a nearby makeshift table, are draped with a blanket. The TIE fighter flies past and it drops down behind a a distant tree line. And for a moment, the coast actually seems clear. But then a few seconds later, it peels out over the valley wall and drops down on them in what you think is going to be a strafing run. The fighter blows past them at no more than 10 meters off the ground and the sonic boom is deafening. But the ruse of being Dre Shepard seems to have worked and the TIE peels off and does not return. As the group's nerves begin to settle down, Nemec taps Cassian on the shoulder reassuringly and says, they'll soon see surprise from above is never as shocking as one from below. Over at the garrison, a a TIE fighter, maybe even the same one that we just saw buzzing the group, uh, sweeps low over the dammed up river, uh, the dammed up river, which now swells like an artificial lake. As the fighter passes over the dam, Lieutenant Gorn exits the control tower onto the rampart, only to find one of his men, uh, Corporal Kimsey, taking a smoke break. 
Yes, he's taking a smoke break. Did you catch that? Death stick break. Well, funny that you should say that. Um, <laughs> I, I thought about it for a little bit because apparently this has caused a bit of a stir with people that, you know, that this guy's a smoker. We don't actually really? see him smoking. We don't actually see him smoking, by the way. But we do see him drop the butt over the railing. Yeah. Ditch the evidence. <laughs> As a uh, rehabilitated. Now, I have not smoked a cigarette in, what, over 12? Uh, what year is it now? 2022. I have not smoked yep. in over 12 years. And I am fully rehabilitated. Like I'm that I'm that guy that's gone. I've swung so far the other way that I can't stand it. And I'm a firm. I'm also a firm believer in there's no real need to show smoking in movies and TV anymore. I just don't think you need to. No. But in saying that, um, if I was going to do it, I think this is exactly how I would do it because I think it's it was great. It's just enough to let you know that oh yeah, just one more aspect of real world isms that they're baking mm. into this show that is trying so hard to show us the everyman. Yeah. And really how many times, I mean the, the smoking soldier trope, um, how many war movies have we seen where like everybody smokes? Yeah. So mm. it's not that far of a, uh, it's not that far of a, of a, of a thing for me really. Um, it serves pretty well to convey another mundane aspect of life on a backwater world that no one has to be posted to that the show is trying very hard to show us. In this case, we're talking about a person who has largely been part of the background in Star Wars. I mean, when is the last time a live Star Wars project addressed an enlisted man by name? They haven't. Normally you, you don't never, get names. You don't get names on the enlist on the rank and file. I mean, you did in the Clone Wars, but, but I mean in live action <clears throat> no never exactly but because he's got a name is he now going to get an action figure <sighs> now that you say that <laughs> and is he going to come with a cigarette yeah. butt i don't know listen i'm going to round out the smoking conversation i'm going to touch back on what you just said about the death stick thing because let's remember smoking has been in star wars since at least at least since the beginning three yeah, like Jabba's hookah, Jabba's hookah pipe, not for show. Like he's he's smoking it. Look at the big ball of, <laughs> of smoke in there. He's smoking yep. that thing. And uh, you know, uh, cigarettes in the real world have been called death sticks long before Elon uh, sells a bagano tried to sell them to Obi Wan. And when you look at him there, yeah, I know that the canonical definition of death sticks is essentially it's a drug. But look at the way he's holding that. Between the two fingers, yeah. that's a that's a cigarette if you ever saw one. Yeah, and that's all we'll say about that. Lieutenant Gorn asks the corporal if he's enjoying the view, and Kimsey snaps to a proper position of at ease, acknowledging his superior with a "Yes, sir," adding that it gets a bit stale in there at times. Looking out over the mountains, uh, Lieutenant Gorn remarks how the view is always inspiring, and uh, Kimsey. Not sure what the right answer is, offers a safe, I suppose. Well, then, taking an opportunity to make small talk with his officer, Kimsey asks if it's true that they'll be tearing it all down to move the airbase here to the garrison. Gorn says it's been discussed, adding that it is a big project. And nodding to himself, Corporal Kimsey says it makes sense, with there not being too many Donnies left to worry about anymore. Now, with the celestial event just one day away, Corporal Kimsey asks the lieutenant, how many Donnies do you think will show up? 
Gordon says he's not sure, remembering that the last time there was less than 100. And Kimsey, who's now fully resigned to the idea that this little interaction that he's having with his boss is what soldiers might refer to as a old-fashioned smoking joke, um, he looks over at the officer, and, and I kid you not, with a shit-eating grin on his face, he says, still enough to smell him, right? I've never had a line of dialogue in Star Wars punch me in the face so hard that just reminded me of the real world. Mm. You know, when you're, when you, when you're experiencing something like your mechanics, whenever they watch something and they see something going on in the shop, they know when somebody's bullshitting it. Yeah. It's the same thing for, you know, army stuff. And I got to tell you, this just like ripped me raw when this guy is like still enough to smell him. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, let's finish the scene here. Goran turns his head towards the corporal, but doesn't make eye contact. And uh, the corporal continues to spout off saying, can you imagine this place with a couple thousand of them? Looking back out over the mountains, Lieutenant Goran says, uh, yes, I can. Then stepping back from the railing, he orders Corporal Kimsey to get back to work, adding that he'll be conducting inspections tomorrow night and he expects him to be at his station. <laughs> With a sir, yes, sir, Corporal Kimsey snaps to it, and the lieutenant carries on his way across the dam. All right, I'm going to unpack this a little bit here. I actually wrote quite a bit on this. I'm just going to read through it because if I if I try to unpack it from a from a place of where it's coming from, it'll I'll sound like an idiot. No, no. So generally speaking, there's this uh, professional line between officers and the men. Um, so awkward interactions like this one, they do happen all the time where like an officer will open the floor and the men will maybe be a little bit too casual. Um, you get this closeness that can, de can develop at this level because, uh, the lieutenants, in addition to the leadership stuff that they are expected to do, they're often doing the same types of work that the corporals and the privates are doing, especially in combat. And that's where the professional lines can get kind of blurred. Because through those shared hardships, you sometimes get cases where troops can get a little too loose-lipped or a little too buddy-buddy, as it were. And I see that I see that as what's going on here. The Kimsey thinks, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna just speak my mind. It's okay, we're buddies. And it's really emboldened um, what he says about how the locals smell. Um which really exposes a dark underbelly in military culture. Now this is star Wars and it is the evil empire and we're supposed to loathe and hate them. And this line of dialogue does that for us in spades. But I can tell you from my own real world experience that I have seen this behavior firsthand. I saw it when I deployed to the Balkans and I saw it again when I went to Afghanistan it's the kind of thing that makes you feel helpless because you don't necessarily know what to do about it because the racist asshole that's standing next to you might be the person to have your back in the next gunfight. It's also the kind of behavior that if it's not squashed by the leadership swiftly and severely can lead to its widespread. And that's how you end up having a military that can be viewed as being guilty of institutional racism. But there is a silver lining here in this case because Gorn does subtly punish Kimsey, if nothing else, than by putting him on duty during the celestial events. So um, I do want to tip my hat uh, to the to the people who work on the show, who uh, who've, who've put the show together for addressing something as ugly as uh, that sort of, as I say, this dark underbelly that exists within 
military culture that nobody really talks about. So um, I think that's a good on you for, for addressing that. Mm-hmm. All right. So Corporal Kimsey, that's uh Nick blood actor, Nick blood. You may remember him as uh, Lance Hunter from uh, agents of shield. He also played uh, Gus on uh, euphoria with Zendaya. All right, back at camp, uh, Terramin and Skeen uncover a buried crate while Nemec carefully lays out some comms gear next to those Imperial rifles we saw. Meanwhile, Cinta is quizzing Cassian on the uh, Aldani phrase book uh, while Bell watches. Tossing down a few bundles of uh, rolled up gear in the middle of camp, Skeen picks up Cassian's satchel to move it. But Cassian, already having been violated once by the man, snaps at him. Hey, what are you doing? Cassian rushes to get the bag, but instead of simply handing it to him, Skeen recoils away from Cassian, saying that it was in the way and he was just moving it. Cassian snatches the bag away from Skeen, shouting, Don't ever! And as the two men stare each other down, Vel interrupts them, reminding Skeen, I thought you were checking the comms. Skeen walks away, and Vel sternly tells Cassian, And you can go dress yourself. Well, now, standing just a few meters away from the rest of the group, Cassian pulls an Imperial tunic off a tree, throwing it over his shoulders. With his back to the rest of the group, he quickly and discreetly pulls the blue kyber from his boot, pulls it over his head, and tucks it into his undershirt just before Terramin arrives to inspect his dress. Satisfied with the fit of the uniform, Terramin says, we'll make a soldier of you yet. At the central office on Coruscant, Dedra walks down a corridor. Having just returned from Ferrix, Blevin and several members of his staff pass her in the opposite direction. Neither officer acknowledges the other, but the, as they, sorry, after they pass, Dedra stops to look back and lend, uh, lend an ear to what Blevin's staffer is telling him. She tells him that he missed something called the Finkley Conference. There's no reference for the Finkley Conference, by the way. I could not find a reference to Finkley, Fink, or any derivative spelling. So I guess that's a new one. She also says that they, whoever they are, have agreed to move up his speech. And then the voices trail off and become indiscernible, leaving Dedra standing there staring for a moment before heading off to her office. Cut to Dedra's office, where she and attendant Heert are now sifting through reams of data, trying to build the case that she needs to get the raw Ferrix file. Dedra asks about Hosnian Prime, and uh, Heert tells her that, well, they haven't broken, mislabeled, or misplaced any equipment in the last 12 quarters. Dedra suggests, well, there might be an internal ledger, but Heert says that he wouldn't trust any information coming from there because the Imperial Navy is the only account on Hosnian Prime now, and they would never admit that anything was wrong. Seeing how late it is in the day, Dedra tells Heert that he should go home, but he says, uh, if you're staying, so am I. Exasperated, Dedra leans on the back of her chair and says that she doesn't know what she's doing. But Heert insists that she does, and he begins naming all the cases that she believes are correlated. Kessel, Fondor, the Proton Warheads from Base K. Also, no reference for uh, Base K as, uh, as well. It's, it's K as in C-A-Y, not the letter K, so that's another new one. Uh, as well as the Star Path unit from Steerguard, all point to a commonality. But Dedra resigns that Major Partagaz was right. Everything is too spread out to be organized. But encouragingly, Heert leans forward in his chair, countering, but you don't believe that. 
Sighing, Dedra tells him that if she were the one committing the crimes, that this is how she'd do it, by spreading it out, and as she calls it, never climbing the same the same fence twice. As the camera pulls in on Heert's face, he says, it's too random to be random. And Dedra tugs at the Mandarin collar of her uniform for a moment before turning back to Heert with a renewed sense of vigor, saying that they'll each take two more files before they quit for the night. With a smile, Heert nods in agreement. He gets up to retrieve the files, and Dedra stops to do another little mundane thing. She takes some medication. So clearly she's got something going on that she needs meds for. Or caffeine pills. Could be. Could be that. Could be a breath mint for all I know. But she did take a, a drink of something to to swallow. Swallow it down, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back at the camp, the wheels on the robbery train are now fully in motion as the camera fixes on the scale model of the garrison, which is now burning up in the campfire. The group stand uh, stands circled around the fire in complete silence. Terraman offers Cassian a pull off a canteen that most certainly is not water, uh, while Skeen shares a bit of food with Nemec. Cassian turns to uh, hand the canteen off to Cinta. Before she can even lift it to her lips, Vel swoops in between the two, takes the canteen from Cinta, looks Cassian dead in the face, and says, Stay focused, Clem. A <laughs> um, little bit of a double meaning here? I think so. We talked a little bit earlier in the week offline um, when people started talking about the the notion that Vel and Cinta might be in a relationship, and Hank had said, did I miss something? And I'm like... And then we started picking away. I missed it too. Sure The first enough, thing was the blanket. Sure enough, the blanket. It, you know what it all boiled down to? They didn't make it you know, expressly clear who yeah, he was looking at. they're not slapping you in the face with it. No, exactly. And it's like, who is he looking at? But then it's like, oh, Skeen is talking about Cinta. So the last line, she's staring, a, uh, sharing a blanket already, I guess, refers to Cinta as well. Yeah. So, hey, Cassian's still, uh, you know, holding on to his womanizing ways. Got eyes for Cinta. Yeah. Well, Vel hoists the canteen and she offers a toast to the rebellion. And Nemec somberly returns the toast with a to the rebellion of his own. And as the camera pulls in closer on the model, the model is now like rockingly like engulfed. There's a neat little thing here going on. And if you guys aren't watching this, uh, if you're not watching this series, I know like uh, subtitles isn't for everybody. We watch it with the subtitles to pick out all the details and stuff. Here's a really interesting little detail. The subtitles capitalizes the word rebellion in uh, this instance. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another uh, rebel reference too uh, later on, where it's the first time in the subtitles that they refer to them as rebels. So that's kind of a neat little thing as well. But yeah, rebellion is capitalized here in both instances. That makes it a proper term. So I guess it's real. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we think this is a bit of foreshadowing as well? Oh, with the the garrison on fire, that they might be uh, burning the bridge on the way out. I feel like whatever happens, there'll be some kind of chaos at the, at the base. There'll be some form of destruction. I don't know. It's a, it's a box freighter. Presumably it's not armed. Um, mm-hmm. So how they blow it up. I don't know. Maybe that's what Vel and Cinta are off doing right now. Is it there could be explosives or something? I don't know. But yes, yep. I do feel like there, it's a great way to cover your tracks, by the way. Burn yeah. Destroy the evidence. Notices. 
but yeah, foreshadowing yeah. to uh, tomorrow night when we leave here, there's going to be some uh, extra fireworks. Maybe is a pretty good chance. But at the same time, if all the people are gathering in the valley for the festival, yeah, oh yeah, that'd yeah, be yeah. pretty reckless to just you know wash the remaining to population put, away. Well, to put them at risk. Oh, that's so true, right? Yeah. Blow the dam. Oh, <laughs> that would be awful. Yep. Well, cut to the early morning uh, at the rebel camp, and we hear the bleeding of the Dre's. The paddock has been left wide open, and the Dre's have now been left to wander about freely. The crew, now all dressed as herders, cross the narrow bridge over the river, and they head out on the long trek to the garrison. Well, back in the apartment on Coruscant, Edie enthusiastically mentions how uh, she didn't tell Cyril how wrong he was about Uncle Harlow, to which Cyril responds, uh, but you will. It's a real Groundhog Day moment here because we're using the same camera angle. They're almost in the exact same position. They're almost wearing identical uh, outfits. I had to go back and double take. Like, are they wearing the same clothes? They're not. But the palette, hmm. the color palettes on their outfits are so similar. It's like, oh my God, it's the same. It's Groundhog Day. Yeah. And uh Yeah. Uh, Cyril's still toiling away over another bowl of crunchies. Edie recounts how Uncle Harlow told her that uh, he never thought policing was uh, Cyril's chosen path. Sarcastically, Cyril remarks, because he knows me so well. Edie insinuates that uh, that's his own fault and suggests that maybe he'll study Uncle Harlow with more energy in the future. Cyril drops the spoon into the bowl of crunchies and looks up at his mother asking, and what field did Uncle Harlow tell you I should be pursuing? Coyly, Edie remarks, he said he wanted to think about it. <laughs> I don't know why I found that line funny, but I, I couldn't stop laughing when she just kind of wanted to think about it. <laughs> she tells Cyril that she struggled with uh, explaining to Uncle Harlow the events that led them uh, to where they are now, adding uh, how she told him that uh, how sorry Cyril was for what happened, suggesting that it was a, a large enough mistake to be deeply educational. Again, all these veiled, you know, like nobody's really saying what they really mean. No, no. Cyril mentions that he did hear some of the conversation, at least his mother's part, and he says it was uh, hard to miss. Uh, and adding, sadly, I wasn't able to study Uncle Harlow's response. Uh, but Edie just shrugs as she says, Uncle Harlow knows how much we're counting on him. And uh, in an outburst of frustration, Cheryl, uh, Cyril shoves the bowl of crunchies away from him and uh, scratches his forehead. Um, what is she apologizing for? Like, is she referring to the incident on Ferrex? Maybe. Or something else. Like, she uses this or ambiguous his, for what happened. Yeah. Like did, did his happen? actions tarnish the family name or something. Did something happen directly between Cyril and Harlow? Like, or is this, uh, does this lend more credence to the fact that maybe Harlow is a moth and that, you know, what happened with the Primor because his family member was a, a, a Primor employee that that negatively reflects on, on him as a moth. It could be. Maybe. All right. I'm sure we're going to find out eventually. Back on Aldani, as the group makes their way towards the garrison, Vel quizzes Cassian on uh, mission information, like key locations and distances within the garrison. 
the emergency comm signal and the all clear to which Cassian is able to recite with ease. But then Cassian cuts her off saying, now it's my turn. And he asks Vel about Lieutenant Gorn. Specifically, why would an Imperial officer get involved with an operation like this? When Vel says, what difference does it make? Cassian glances ahead at the rest of the group and he says, well, everyone else seems to know. Well, Vel relents and she explains that Gorn fell in love with a local woman. And that cost him a promotion. And without going into any detail, she says that uh, then he lost the woman. and Then he lost his taste for the Empire. Looking at Cassian, she says, everyone has their own rebellion. Well, inside the garrison, Lieutenant Gorn enters the hangar area and we get a really nice hero shot of the Rono Hauler. Along the port side, three huge gangplanks are lowered and we get a real sense of how big this ship really is as uh, several tiny looking technicians are seen milling about both inside and outside the ship. A technician spotting the lieutenant calls attention on deck as he descends the staircase onto the hangar floor and walks to the back of the room. Just beyond the natural cut rear hangar wall sits another room. This one is blocked by metal bars. Inside the room sits stacks upon stacks upon stacks of Imperial credits. This is the vault. Corporal Kimsey, by the way, um, the the description so the uh the, the subtitles identify the mustachioed guy as Kimsey. So we're seeing Kimsey for a second time. I didn't think it was the same guy. Now hmm. he's got his head he's got his headdress on. Um it says it's it's Kimsey. Um, but it's like we just saw him up top and he had a radio thing around his neck and now he's not. So I don't know, maybe he's got multiple jobs that he's doing, but anyway. Maybe um, he was guy, listening in in case he gets in trouble. He's identified as Kimsey, so uh Corporal Kimsey. And another technician fall in behind Lieutenant Gorn as the lieutenant tells them that he's prepared a reduced schedule for tomorrow night's celestial event, the Eye of Eldani. Now, the unnamed technician remarks how much that will mean for the men. But Gorn is not happy as he points out that the steel gantry that surrounds the upper hangar is not painted. And it's a task that he previously assigned has now become a much higher priority with the engineer from Coruscant arriving today. He tells the technician that maybe painting it tomorrow night will make the point more clear. Kimsey and the other tech, they stare at each other for a minute before Kimsey, boldly sticking out his neck for the second time today, asks if he can speak plainly. Gorn says, uh, speak plainly and quickly. And then Kimsey espouses how Aldani isn't really anyone's first choice of posts. That when you find out that you're going there, the only silver lining is that maybe you'll be there to see the eye. The second tech adds how he believes that because they are so close, um, it would be crushing to troop morale if there was any more than an essential roster working tomorrow night. Pausing for a moment, Lieutenant Gorn sternly tells them that uh, he wants the gantry painted the day after tomorrow and that he'll be back to inspect it by midday. He tells the men, uh, he tells the two to make sure the men understand just how close they were to missing out. And then as he turns to walk away, there's a slight smile that creeps up on his face because he has just set the stage for tomorrow night's robbery. But in a manner that makes them think they did it. Well, absolutely. Right. Like he makes them feel good. Like, okay, you guys, you guys can go, but. He totally justifies, you know, yeah. why there's going to be nobody there. They're all going to be watching it, 
Um, and who knows if they live past tomorrow, maybe that thing will get painted. I don't know. (laughs) But, uh, knowing what we know now about him, doesn't that paint that line earlier in even more of a light about uh, Kim's Kim's Kimsey saying, you know, you can smell them. But if we know now that Goran was in love with someone from Eldani, well, that kind of leans into like why, yeah, you're definitely working tomorrow night. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah that's part of that uh, rank has its privileges thing where it's like, you can't, you know, I can punish you without you knowing that it's punishment. <laughs> yeah. Well, meanwhile, Vel and the rest of the crew stop to take a break from their forced March. Nemec uh, sits atop a rocky Ridge providing overwatch while the others rest several meters below Skeen hands Nemec a canteen before returning to the group. Now with the group spread out fairly wide, Nobody notices Skeen returning from the ridge when he pulls out a knife and holds it to Cassian's throat. He tells Cassian, don't move because you know what'll happen. And now very suddenly he's got everybody's attention. Snatching the blue kyber from Cassian's neck, he holds it up, announcing what it is and how he knew Cassian was lying. Um, We get some clarification in this uh, sequence because Skeen calls it Sky Kyber which kind of debunks what we were talking about before about maybe it's a combination of like the Muntur stones and mm-hmm. Kyber. No, no, this is just, it is sky Kyber is just a name for this particular type of Kyber. Well, Vel tries to intercede, but Skeen won't be rationed with uh, rationalized with at this point. He reminds them that Cassian came with nothing, but the clothes on his back. And now He's also got a stone worth 30,000 credits. A figure I was halfway I waiting. I was halfway waiting for him to say, no, I won't take less than 50. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he just shorted Luthen's uh, valuation by 20 grand on that. Yeah. Um, we did. We talked about that earlier this week too, before, uh, before we went to air and uh, Hank had mentioned about how, you know, he's got a, a fairly good uh, idea of value. And I thought, you know, does that speak to uh Skeen and, and sort of his background? Like perhaps he's a jewel thief. Maybe that that's why he knows approximate values. Who knows? Could be. Well, then seeing the commotion, he shouts down what's going on, uh, but is promptly ignored at the same time. Vel tells Skeen that if he had a problem, he was supposed to come to her something that he clearly has not done until right now. Skeen says he's at his limit and he proceeds to lay things out the way that he sees it. He goes on to accuse Clem of not saying why he's here, where he's from or what he believes in. Then holding up the Kyber, he shouts. And now this adding who brings a treasure to a robbery. Vel shouts back. We don't have time for this, but Skeen won't back down as he insists. I need to know who I'm riding with. Cassian shouts, you know exactly who I am. Standing up, he adds, and you know I'll kill you for it. Skeen swings the kyber uh, towards Cassian as he retorts, well, at least we know it's not a fake, huh? But Cassian begins to reach for his blaster tucked into the belt at the back of his trousers, but uh, Terraman quickly draws on him and says, let's not go too far, Clem. Cassian says he just wants what's his and uh, continues reaching for the blaster. And Terraman shouts, don't put me on the spot. Pretty clear that he will shoot if it comes right down to it. Yeah. Well, now at the end of her own rope, Vel shouts, enough, as she orders everyone to stand down. 
Shouting down from the ridge, Nemec calls out and says, there's a ship approaching from up the valley. Vel orders everyone to get their packs on and put their weapons away. She turns her ire towards Skeen and says, uh, to give uh, give the stone back to Cassian, adding, you can kill each other later. <laughs> Which I kind of laughed at. The two men stare at each other for a moment before Skeen tosses the stone at Cassian, telling him, you'd be right where I am. And Cassian hisses, tell yourself whatever you want. Nemec calls down again, this time to say that he thinks they're going to be okay because the ship is headed towards the garrison. And we then see a Lambda-class shuttle pass by off at the distance. The group, I guess that's the Imperial engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the group gathers their things to head out again, and Vel remarks that they can talk when it's safe. As the shuttle passes, Cassian pauses for a moment to collect his thoughts before facing the group and blurting out, I'm being paid. The group collectively pauses to take in what they just heard, and everyone seems to be caught off guard. Cassian continues saying, you need to know? Well, that's it. Seemingly confused, Nemec rapidly blinks while he shakes his head and says, what? Cassian lays it bare for them. He is indeed here for the money, and he asks, what, you can't live with that? I'm not worth it? He adds, "Uh, I'll walk away and wish you luck, but that's what it is. Then, leaning in and staring hard at Skeen, he says, I don't want to have, I don't want to walk in having to look over my shoulder. Terraman looks to Vel and asks, you knew this? Her tone drops and she levels with them. She tells him, or she tells them, the choice was to take him or call it off. Nemec is really surprised at, at that and Skeen says that she should have told them days ago. Vel admits maybe she should have. Um, but then Cassian says it would have just been something else. Skeen asks Cassian, what does he mean by that? And uh, he tells them the day before is always hard. There's too much time to worry. And Terraman blurts out, so you think we're scared? And Cassian rightly asserts, I know you are. With a look of disappointment all over his face, Nemec asks, it's really only the money? Cassian shoots back, to take a risk like this? Come on. Terraman suggests maybe Cassian is the one who's afraid. And uh, Cassian shouts, of course I'm afraid, but there's a difference between fear and losing your nerve. He says, if you want out of this, make a choice, but don't use me as an excuse. Terraman looks to Cinta and calls her name as if it were a question. And Cinta says, no, she didn't tell me. Staring off, not making eye contact, Vel just nods before she gathers herself and orders everyone, let's get to the camp. We can chew on it there. And uh, with the tension broken, at least for now, they all pack up and they head out. And there is our uh, third, and I would say final mm-hmm. confirmation that Vel and Cinta are definitely uh, a couple. Because why else would know, she know intimate details not known to everyone absolutely. else? Of course. Yeah. Um, the other thing going on here might be like the level of surprise at the notion of calling off the mission. Like, are they all just running on blind faith at this point? Like that Vel really is the leader that they think she is. I think so. Cause like I, I, to invest that much, right. Sleeping on rocks, living off roots. Right. They're all in. Do you think that they know, like they collectively, the group know that there's a bigger player. Like, do you think anybody else, like maybe they don't know that it's Luthen, but do you think that they suspect that there's somebody higher in this? Not before this, but now they might. 
Yeah. 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 I mean, how Vel's got to be able to explain herself leaving for days at a time to go and meet with him. So, yeah. You know, I'm the just line, curious, you know, though. it was take him or call it off. So it's right. like, it's take not him. her choice. Right. So somebody is pulling strings here. I'm curious to know yeah. how much they know about the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Back on Coruscant, Mon Mothma's Senate limo flies through the cityscape at night. The senator and her husband ride in the back seat, and both of them are dressed very formally. Mon Mothma removes her earrings, and parents sighs before remarking how she noticed him speaking with uh, somebody named Gar Tafid. Uh, again, another new name uh, on this one, Gar Tafid. We've never seen this name before. Presumably somebody uh, closely connected to Mon Mothma, though. She acknowledges that uh, the detail, and uh, she says, oh, you were busy tonight. The dejected parent says to his wife, he knows more about what you do, uh, what you're up to than I do. And scoffing, Mon Mothma remarks, well, that must be embarrassing for him. Perrin stares at the limo floor and he asks her when she was planning on telling him about her new foundation. Without looking at him, uh, Mon Mothma absently says, I thought you wouldn't be interested. Perrin, now staring directly at her, asks, why's that? And glancing back at him, she says, it's charitable. Perrin looks at the driver through the glass partition and asks, what's his name? Annoyed, Mon Mothma cocks her head as she tells him, again, it's Chloris. Toggling the intercom, Perrin asks Chloris to take the expressway, while uh, Mon Mothma sits expressionless, staring out the window. Chloris acknowledges the request, and the limo picks up speed and merges onto the expressway. Another one of those little everyday details. Yeah, well, that too. Um, I made a note here. There's something going on here where this is the first time where I actually feel a little bit of sympathy for Perrin as the uh, husband. He's like the, he's on the outside looking in, you know, and he just feels kind of dejected about the whole thing. At the same time, I'm not so sure that it's not all an act either, especially now that we know that he's associating with people like Sly Moore, who we know who we know is a, is so close to the emperor and is a force user who uses her ability to weed out political secrets. Um, Mon Mothma already knows that she's being watched. This would be a, an incredibly uh, uh, easy way uh, to manipulate her own husband to, you know, divulge. But at the same yeah. time, keeping him in the dark on her comings and goings is almost beneficial because of the company he's keeping. Yeah, well, it has to be. It has to be for those reasons. Not like Mon Mothma knows that Slymore is a force user, but no, but as a as a shrewd, you know, I'm doing stuff that could get me imprisoned if not dead. You would be very tight lipped about what you were doing. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Where am I at here? Oh, back on Aldani, uh, Vel leads the crew across a ridge line that overlooks the garrison. Nemec and uh, Cassian pause down to look, and uh, Cassian remarks how much it looks like the scale model. Nemec says well, it should, saying that uh, they've been coming up here for months to study it. From off-camera, Vel orders a fire to be started, saying that they need to signal soon. And here it is. The descriptive audio here calls them rebels for the first time in this sequence. Nice. On Coruscant, Cyril Karn sits alone on the edge of his bed. It's nighttime now, and the room is softly lit by a few small light fixtures over the bed. 
In his hands, he holds a uh, small hollow projector. Now, the descriptive audio calls this a hollow puck, so it may actually be a precursor to the the bounty pucks, to maybe the bounty that we see in Mandalorian, yeah, or related to yeah. the the bounty pucks in Kenobi. Mm-hmm. But activating the puck, uh, the image of Cassian Andor's old mugshot flickers into existence, and uh, Cyril stares, unblinking, as it flickers and uh, rotates. So there is that. Uh... <clears throat> there is, however, one other detail that uh, I want to talk about, and that is that uh, Cyril Karn, Cyril Karn is one of us. He's one of At us. And when I, when I say that he's one of us, I mean, he's like, he's a toy guy like we are. Um, mm-hmm. So regular viewers of the show and regular listeners, you guys know that we're, we're toy guys here. We talk about Star Wars toys all the time and we, are, we go nuts for a good star wars toy reference in our uh, star wars tv and we've had some really good ones too um i I think we all did the leo dicaprio thing pointing at the tv when we saw uh, a few of them like and i put a few of them here on the screen like when the uh, speeder bike exploded like the the kenner the vintage kenner toy flipping the rider off the top or the um the the imperial yeah the imperial troop transporter showing up as the uh, trexler marauder and of course, the I think the most prominent one that we all kind of went <gasps> was uh, Bib Fortuna showing up with his uh, his staff from uh, the Return of the Jedi action figure line. The line yeah. I might add, where it seemed like everybody uh, got sticks instead of guns. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, this might be the most meta toy reference in a Star Wars uh, show ever, because on the side of the room, on a small table. There is what I am like ninety nine point nine 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 nine. You know what I'm saying? Those are a pair of six inch clone troopers, like Phase Two clone troopers. Um, and I'm not an expert, but I'm gonna suggest that they might actually be the uh Tamashi Nation's SH Figure Arts Phase Two clone trooper from Bondi, because there's no way. There's no way you're getting a crouch like that out of a black series figure. That's for sure. No, <laughs> it could be another six inch line, but I mean, the scale is right. The scale is so right for six inch and mm-hmm. uh, man, they look good. Um, I, I think it's really cool. That says a lot about him. Not only is he a toy guy, but like, remember we were talking earlier about his sort of, he's the guy that wanted, he wanted to be, but nobody would hire him. Yeah. You know, like there's a, some fanboying around maybe being in the military, although he never was. Yeah. Anyway. Next cool best thing. Moment, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So cool if those are. Hopefully we'll get a confirmation on that sometime down the line from uh, the folks that make the show. If we don't, eh, that's fine too. Uh, I still think. Oh, we ended up with it. one I, for Obi-Wan. I still think they're real. Oh, I know we did in the in the thing with the doll, the doll, the yeah. figure on the, on the table. Mm. I'll be watching yeah. for that. When we get to the making of, I will definitely be looking for uh, clone trooper action figures because I think that's what yep. they are. Back on Aldani, Lieutenant Gorn stands at the end of the rampart uh, on the upper dam. He looks down at his uh, watch-like device for a moment before lifting a set of quadnoculars. These are got four, four monocles on them uh, to his eyes, and he begins scanning the ridgeline. And almost immediately... Uh, he spots the bright heat signature of a torch being waved overhead by a man. 
cut to the ridge line where we can see that hey it's Terramin and he is waving a torch uh where vel yeah shouts up to him okay that should do it before she walks off to join the others around their small campfire he keeps going for a kind of weird that like a i know weird length of time she's... after she says you're done <laughs> i thought the same thing like dude she told you you're done you don't need to keep going for posterity like you're done is yeah. done well, skiing crouches uh, while he tends the fire. Vel walks over to him and she calls his name. And uh, he just kind of stares uh, sheepishly at the fire before getting up and walking over to where Cassian is uh, sitting. This time, with a much more humble tone than the last time we heard him speak, Skeen tells uh, Cassian that Vel had asked him to tell the story about his brother. Cassian looks over his shoulder at him and Skeen starts uh, by saying that there's a long version, but what matters is the empire killed him. He explains that his brother was a farmer and uh, the Imperial prefect came in, took over the land and flooded it. His brother wasn't able to do anything about it and eventually couldn't bear the loss anymore. So he went out in a boat one day and filled his pockets with stones. Looking at the ground, uh, Skeen's voice trails off for a moment. And when he continues, he says, I always hated the Empire, but I'm not sure what to call what it is I feel now. Humbly, Cassian asks, what kind of farm was it? And Skeen tells him it was a pepper tree farm. He says that there were centuries of them. Cassian respectfully averts his gaze, and Skeen uh, says, that's as close, to, uh, as close as you're going to get to an apology. Well, looking up, Cassian says, that's close enough. And Skeen nods before heading back to the fire. With a kind of peace now made between the two men, Vel steps across the fire to Cassian and tells him that Terramin is in charge now, stressing completely in charge. When Cassian asks her, where will you be? She says that if all goes well, she'll see him tomorrow night. From across the fire, Terramin says, I need to hear you tell me you can follow the plan. And Cassian says, you won't have a problem from me. Then Nemec hands Vel one of the space AKs and wishes her good luck. Vel says no farewells tonight, adding that they have plenty of work to do tomorrow. Then, uh, with loaded packs, both she and Cinta head off into the night. Back on Coruscant, we get an exterior shot of uh, Luthen's gallery. It's uh, well after hours at this point, and the lights inside are dimmed. At the same time, we can hear the squelch of a radio, kind of like what we heard when Bix was calling uh, Luthen from Ferrix. Before we cut to the back room, where Luthen is now holding an earpiece to his head while he fiddles with the controls of a rather large and primitive-looking comm device. Then a door slides open, and Clea enters from an adjoining garage where we can see Luther's Fondor Hallcraft nestled inside. She crosses the room to a table that's covered in tools and other instruments related to the restoration of artifacts before she notices Luthen's preoccupation with the radio. Staring across the room at him, she says, I thought you were turning it off. And Luthen, who acts like he's like a child who's just been caught, he says, I was just going to. And Clea reminds him that he told her that an hour ago. And, and Luthen quips, am I keeping you up? <laughs> Clea tells him quite pointedly that there aren't any transmissions scheduled to come in that night. And that if he wants to be useful, go clean some coins. Looking like a lost puppy dog. Luthen places the earpiece back on the comm unit and uh, powers it off 
and then he shuts the drawer, concealing it, asking Clea, happy now? Still unable to relax, Luthen snaps his gaze to Clea, asking, have you checked your walkaway bag? And she gives him a blunt, yes, but he keeps going. And the one on the Fondor? And with a piercing glaze, Clea says, I don't like seeing you nervous. Taking the hint, Luthen picks up a caddy of tools and he carries it to the back wall um, where the radio is and he puts them away. But Clea steps out from behind the bench, remarking, listen, they're going to either be fine or they're not. Luthen turns around to face her and calls it a daring prediction. Clea reminds him that Vel is the only one that traces back to them, and uh, Luthen reveals that he has slipped up. He says, no, the thief, Cassian Andor. Clea pauses for a moment before locking eyes with Luthen and says, you wanted this to happen. This is what it took. It's never going to be perfect. And then downtrodden, Luthen says, I wanted it too much. Clea reminds Luthen that they have clients in the morning, and he says, I'll be ready. Before she leaves for the night, she tells him, it will all be over by this time tomorrow. And with a sideways look, Luthen says, or it'll just be starting. And uh, he, acknowledges it, he acknowledges it with a smirk as she says, or that, and then turns to walk out of the room. Luthen turns off the lights uh, over the back wall and he heads for the door. Then the camera cuts to the exterior of the building, looking back inside the workshop from a large exterior window as uh, he hits another switch and the doors slide shut behind him and we cut to black. And that is the end of our episode. But before that, I just want to, let's just focus on a couple things here. We got a better look at uh, some of the stuff in the room this week. We got a better look at the, the Jedi and the Sith holocrons this week. Mm-hmm. We also got a, what I am going out on a limb and I'm calling the Shankara stones from uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. They are on the, on the shelf uh, right beside the holocrons. And uh, anybody Which who's is, in the, uh, po- sorry, go ahead, Andy. It's fitting that they're there seeing as what there was there last week with the whip and the idol. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I think the stones, they were there last week as well, but we just never got this good of a look at them where we could like clearly make out the lines on them. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely three of them there and they are, they look pretty good. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's in, uh, you know, in the podcasting world and the YouTubing world may have recognized that there is also a, uh, road PSA one boom arm, uh, attached to one of the tables as well. So I tossed that one in there for fun. <laughs> All right. So with the episode, uh, over, I want to just, I want to close on this for a second. I'm going to say, um, man. I've already swung big with one theory. I'm going to toss out another one because there's a few questions I have that sort of pertain to the, the tone of the episode we got this week. We got some more character motivations. We know what Nemec is a political ideologist. He's a true believer and Skeen's a revenge guy. Yeah. We don't know where the others in the group are coming from. Like what is there? Are they, Again, are they believers? Are they, have they been wronged by the big, bad, evil empire? We don't know where they're coming from. Well, we know that Gorn is a revenge guy too. Oh yeah, absolutely is. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, when we hold that up against Luthen's behavior with the conversation that he just had with uh, Kalea tonight, it really reminds me of the conversation that he had with Vel back when they first arrived at Eldani. Like, you know, he's sitting there in the cockpit and he said, she, like, predictively, she's going to argue with me. She's not going to like it. 
So like clearly he knows her. Yeah. Well, I'm going to swing big on this one and I'm going to propose. I could be way off on this one, but I think that Vel might be Luthen's daughter. We will never speak of him. There's a reason why when Luthen was Maybe. yelling at her, when he yelled at her, look at me, she just ate it. And she did. Yeah. She never barked back at him. She never questioned a thing that he said. When he gave her the whole leadership speech, this is what it takes. You be a leader. I think about, you know, the level, the level of risk that people, the level of perceived risk that we're getting with some of these characters. Uh, Mon Mothma has spoken about her level of risk. Luthen is also at risk. When you are uh, potentially exposing yourself like this, how do you decide who to trust and who do you put out there? You know, is a family member the easiest, you know, the easiest way to do it? Like, I mean, they if all you, did it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if both like multiple members of your family have been wronged by something and you're all joined in that cause. Yeah. It would make that easier to form that trust for sure. It begs the question, like, where is Vel's, uh, where is Luthen's wife? I don't think that, uh, I don't think that, uh, Kalea is his wife. I, you know, the actress, she could be, she definitely could be a wife, but she's significantly mm. younger than he is. Yeah. Um, and even her, like, do you, I don't think that she's just a simple hired help. She's clearly in no, on what's going she's on. in on what she knows. You think maybe that's a, another daughter, uh, perhaps a sister for Vel? Maybe. And then the other question is, where's the mother in all of this? That could be your or, missing link. Where is Cyril's father? Stolen by the Empire. Well, there's that too. Yeah. Right? Well, listen, there. that's not one big theory for me. That's two big theories this week. Will we get to see either of them play out? I don't know. Um, Maybe. I certainly hope so. Before we close out, uh, you want to talk about wh- what do we think is going to happen uh, next week or where we think it's going? I think we're finally going to get the heist. For sure we're getting the heist. Absolutely we are. And we're going to get to see the uh, Eye of Aldani. I think that's going to be awesome. I think that's going to be a major yeah. set piece. Um, some of the marketing, I think we've seen them flying through. We've seen a, a quick glimpse of them flying through it, uh, or at least a ship with Cassian on it flying through something that looks pink and sparkly. So I presume that's yeah. it. <laughs> um, absolutely. Next week is going to be the heist. I think there's a, there's a good chance that... Uh, I was thinking about this today too. Um, there's a good chance that, you know, we've been sort of putting our fingers on who do we think is going to make it out alive. And there's a part of me that is willing to go as far as saying that Cassian might be the only one to make it out alive. There's Maybe. a good chance that nobody makes it out, but him. And if that's the case, if that's the case, is that not a great catalyst for him though, to question his entire life? Like, what am I, what am I doing? What do I have? Like, what am I fighting for? Of course, he's not fighting at this point. He's just trying to live his life and not get caught. But, you know, put, to put yourself, to give your life some meaning. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, In saying that, I do think next week is going to be more of a whiz bang episode. So it may, it may look a little bit more uh, like what uh, Star Wars fans may be a little bit more used to. Maybe some more run and gun. More more blaster fights and yeah exactly exactly 
Um, and the last thing I just want to say is, uh, this is it for me, uh, before we get going, uh, I'm away on vacation next week. So, um, there's a good chance that I may not be on uh, next week's episode depends on how the Wi-Fi is when we get to where we're going. Um, if all works out, if all works out, uh, I may be doing some uh, special reporting on location at an undisclosed uh, tropical location where hopefully I'll be able to leave my thoughts for you guys, uh, to, uh, to have for the episode. But, uh, if not, I will be back for the, uh, the week after that for episode, uh, seven, but, uh, next week it's all you and Hank, Andy. Ooh. Try and do good. You guys will do just fine. I know you will. You've done it before. <laughs> In fact, it was what? It was almost a year ago this time. Uh, I think you so. Guys did the same thing. It was, was it an, uh, a Mandalorian episode? I believe was it was. It? I think it was. Yeah. All right. In any event, this has been our little show, Fandor. It was uh, episode five The Axe Forgets. Cool title, cool proverb. Um, I really enjoyed this one. Uh, really loving the show i rewatched rogue one last night man it's so much deeper now <laughs> i encourage you uh do give it a watch through now we're kind of at the well next week episode six we're officially at the halfway point so probably worth yep. re-watching uh at the halfway point and then maybe again at the end who knows who knows but uh you know what guys until then that's it for me so uh for fandom power my name is wes i'm andy and uh we'll catch you on the next one guys Bye for now.